You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Ed Ludlow in New York in for Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a major sell-off hits tech and the markets at large nearing 2022 lows. We'll have the latest in a moment. Plus, Apple is jumping into the sports industry from the Super Bowl halftime show and NFL Sunday ticket to tonight's potentially historic Major League Baseball broadcast. We're talking about how the company is eating away at traditional TV's most coveted assets. And NASA hopes to launch the Artemis mission to the moon next week. We'll get the latest from our space reporter, Lauren Grush. We'll get to that in a moment, but first, let's talk markets. Friday was rough. A sell-off in riskier assets deepened as fears of a global recession intensified. Tech was not spared, with the Nasdaq 100 falling to its lowest level since June. The S&P 500 touching two-year lows and Wall Street's fear gauge soaring toward a three-month high. Joining me to go over... This less than happy end to the week. Who else but Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld? I'll ask you again. How are you? I'm a little tired. It was an intense day to an intense week. I remember there was a Fed meeting all the way back on Wednesday. It feels like a year ago. Let's go back to basics. There was yeah. a Fed meeting on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. The Fed raised rates by 75 basis points. And the dot plot, the, the forecast, showed 4.4% rates by the end of the year, 4.6% rates further out into 2023, the terminal rate. Exactly. Why have markets reacted like this? Well, Jerome Powell was pretty clear on Wednesday that this wouldn't be a painless process. That big, aggressive revision up in the dot plot, uh, that's going to cause pain for the economy. That's causing pain for the market. But today was especially dramatic because it actually started over in England, Ed. Uh, you had Liz Truss's government unveil, I believe, the biggest tax cuts since 1972. Right. This is into a economy that's already dealing 
dealing with ultra-hot inflation. You have a very aggressive Bank of England. And again, if you think about the global tightening that's going on, this is just another crank tighter. And that fear was definitely present across global assets today. It was just another thing to add anxiety to the market. So yeah. I want to look at this chart on the Bloomberg Terminal which shows the kind of decline we've seen in tech stocks in particular, but also the push higher in real yields. And we keep talking about the Fed. Every week I'm here with Emily Chang, I'm talking about the Fed. We talk about it because higher rates discount the present value of future profits for tech stocks. Mm -hmm. But it seems like a one-two punch. <laughs> for the audience, I just did a one-two punch. And it looked great. And you were exactly right. So you're using some CFA terms here, but they're really important in that real yield, the fact that real yields have screamed higher. Again, the yield that you get on bonds after accounting for inflation, that is sort of the basis for valuing other assets. Right. And the fact that you are seeing those real yields scream higher, that has a lot of implications for duration heavy stocks such as right. tech stocks those growth stocks where a lot of those cash flows are expected in the future they're worth less when you have that discount rate go and higher. speaking about growth the fear is about a slowdown in global growth that's almost the other punch right that the other consequences of the Fed is that actually, even if you're a mega cap tech stock like an Apple and Amazon, we've seen declines in those, mm -hmm. that the world's a different place now. The economy's slowing down and, and, and they might suffer. The other fear, so to speak, the fear gauge. A lot of fear here. The VIX. Ed. Talk to me about the VIX. We don't cover it as much on the tech show, but, but briefly explain what it is and why it matters. So the VIX, it's looking at expectations for volatility for the next 30 days. And it's been a bit of a frustrating, frustrating indicator to watch because if you look at the VIX, it's been relatively low. I mean, it was uh, getting back to 30s today, but it's been very low relative to some of the levels that we saw during the pandemic, during the past two years. And you compare that to what we've actually seen in the equity market, it doesn't feel like it's matched the reality on the ground. But you are starting to see some movement in the VIX today. Right. It got to a three-month high. So some of that fear is starting to show up in the VIX and what's been a very orderly sell-off thus far. It's the weekend. You can take a rest, but Fed speak to come. Fed speak to come. Uh, my sources tell me, Romaine Postic specifically, that there's 13 unique Fed speakers next week. This is going to be important to watch. Even if you're right. a tech investor, you should keep an eye on the Fed speak because it's going to be interesting to see what any sort of message, any sort of crumbs they leave about how they feel about this market reaction. If you go back to after Jackson Hole, the speech that Jerome Powell gave, markets puked in the aftermath of that. And then you actually had Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari say that he was happy to see that market reaction. I don't know if we're going to get anything as explicit as that, but any sort of hints along that, li that line would be very interesting. Puke. Puke. What a happy way to end the week. Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld. Thank you very much. Apple has become a serious threat to traditional cable providers propped up by live sports. Three major storylines are playing out that could make Apple a real player in sports broadcasting. Apple TV has only aired MLB games for a few months, but tonight it could have record viewership with Aaron Judge, one home run away from MLB history. Apple Music will become the title sponsor of the Super Bowl halftime show, taking over from Pepsi. And Apple is in talks with the NFL to take Take the all-access Sunday ticket package from DirecTV in a deal that could top 
billion. Here's how crucial this could be for Apple. A recent survey of 2,500 NFL fans found that 48% of them definitely will or are likely to subscribe to Sunday Ticket when offered by a major streaming provider. Here to discuss is Bloomberg's Apple reporter Mark Gurman and Bloomberg Business and Sports reporter Brandon Sapienza. Brandon, I'm going to start with you. Big game Friday night and it matters for a guy called Aaron Judge and it matters for Apple TV. Set the stage for us. Why do we care? Well, I mean, Aaron Judge could tie Roger Maris with the 61st home run. Obviously, that's really big news. Yankee fans have been waiting a long season to see that happen. But they might not get, all get the chance to do that tonight. So a lot of them are really upset. I could personally attest to that. They might not get the chance to do that. Mark, give us the specifics here. What is the deal that Apple has with Major League Baseball? So for the past few weeks, as you said, or a few months, I should say, through the Apple TV app on all of the supported devices, Apple has aired two MLB games every Friday night. They put the schedules out a few weeks in advance. It just so happens that this agreed-upon game featuring the Yankees and Aaron Judge tonight, that's the game that everyone in New York wants to see. And because of that agreement, it won't be aired on the Yes Network. That's the local network in New York. So if Brandon wants to watch that, he won't be able to unless he signs up for Apple TV. Now, the positive here is that it, uh, this goes against some speculation I've seen you don't actually have to pay for it right some people thought you had to pay the 49 per month for Apple TV plus to actually view it that's not the case still the MLB deal is free at right. some point though I think they'll charge for it but for tonight you really just need an Apple TV app or access to the app in order to watch the game gents I wanted to get the mood music out there across New York so what did I do I took to Twitter and I did a Twitter poll and I asked Yankees fans, Major League Baseball fans, who's watching the game tonight on Apple TV Plus? That's the results. Now, okay, pinch of salt here. It's not exactly scientific. Around 600 votes. But no, 43.5%. I guess a lot of people are going to go and see it themselves in person. But if you are a Yankees fan or you're a baseball fan, Brandon, it's a complicated season. Yeah. What do you need to do across the season if you live in the state of New York to actually watch a game? So if you live in the state of New York, you actually need four services to get you a Yankee game. So either you need one of, to view one of the Peacock games, you need Peacock. Right. Then you need Amazon TV, Amazon Prime. Then you need a cable network or something that has access to the Yes Network, which I think is only direct TV stream in the case of... Uh, if you want to stream, if you're unplugged from cable. And then, obviously, you need Apple TV, which I know, as Mark said, it is free. But for a lot of fans, it's a lot of services and a lot of money that may need to be laid out. And it's, it's obviously not ideal in this inflationary environment. Mark, what is Apple's play here? What is their strategy with sports more broadly? Because it's not just baseball. So you heard that problem that Brandon outlined where you need four different services to catch all your Yankee games, right? That's not alone for MLB, right? I'm an NBA fan. Sometimes you need League Pass. Sometimes for the Lakers, you need Spectrum Sportsnet. Sometimes you need ESPN, right? And so Apple's ideal world is you throw all that away, right? You subscribe for one price every month, and you get every game you want across every different sports league. And they're gradually heading there, right? This MLB partnership, just the beginning. You mentioned the talks with the NFL for Sunday Ticket just the beginning. The MLS deal, that's a 10-year deal, that's a component of it. I think they'll eventually go after the NBA, college, maybe high school sports, who knows? They want everything, they want one single monthly price, 
build your own a la carte system where you can pay you know, X amount for MLB, NBA, NFL, pay a different price for this, build your own packages, a standalone Apple Originals non-sports package. They want to own everything, right? And this has been a big week for them. Those talks are ongoing. You mentioned that deal for about 50 million where they're going to be replacing Pepsi, right, as a sponsor for the you know, halftime game, right, at the uh, Super Bowl. That's a big way to get Apple's brand out there, make more sports fans familiar with the Apple brand, Apple Music, Apple TV, et cetera. And of course, the situation that Brandon outlined tonight, that's gonna get the Apple name out there for a lot more people. Right. And obviously, this Aaron Judge situation is perfect marketing for Apple, and Apple was never gonna give in and let Yes uh, co-stream the game. That chart you see on your screen to our global audience seems so important, right? Apple's budget, six billion for streaming in 2022. Prime Video, 15 billion. Brandon, is it just inevitable that Apple, Amazon, streaming giants come to dominate sports television. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about who owns all these products, who owns an Apple product, who owns a subscription to Amazon Prime, you're talking about a lot of people, tens of millions of people, and all of these people are also motivated by more and more quality content turning to streaming, turning off from cable, and just focusing all their attention and their money there. So it is inevitable. Let's talk about Apple, Mark, and its efforts around the NFL and halftime show for the Super Bowl, right? This is not a play for the broadcasting. This is a play for advertising. This is a pure advertising way, a pure way to get their brand out there. This is a five-year deal. Obviously, anyone who watches the Super Bowl knows that Pepsi has sponsored that for many years. Now Apple's going to be the forefront of that. And you can just probably imagine that Tim Cook, Eddie Q, their head of services, you know, a lot of their team will probably be there. You'll see them on camera there. You'll see their brand plastered everywhere. They'll make a whole big deal about it. I'm interested to see if they're going to get back in the game of making commercials right, for the Super Bowl, something they did many, many years ago, obviously with the original 1984 Mac, but they haven't really done much of that since then. So I think this is a big branding opportunity for Apple. And despite all the cash they have on hand, right, $100 billion plus, you know, $50 million, still $50 million. So I think they see this as a, a significant way to put their foot down and say, hey, we're here too for sports. Uh, and I think Brandon's point about all these other services is also pretty interesting. And what's really cool about Apple TV is they have a feature called Apple TV channels, right? So let's say Amazon or another provider, Peacock, Brandon mentioned, they get some really cool deal with one of the major sports leagues. Potentially, maybe that could be tapped through in Apple TV. So the Apple TV app, you can access Apple services, Apple partnerships, but maybe those from NBC and Amazon and the likes of those as well. Mark, you've got your finger on the pulse of Apple, not just from the product perspective, but the kind of broader strategy. So talk to me about Sunday Ticket and NFL. Is Tim Cook and co really willing to just keep spending that cash? Because they got cash to burn. They have a lot of cash and they want to use that cash to make even more cash, right? And so right now they're making about $20 billion a quarter, right, on services, about $80 billion per year. Imagine that investment, that $2.5 billion investment, what that will do for Apple's bottom line, right? Maybe one day we'll be talking about $90 billion or $100 billion uh, annual income from services with NFL just the beginning of that. That's a big deal. And as we all know, NFL Sunday games, that's the holy grail not only of NFL for football, but the holy grail of all of sports, right? Even the NBA doesn't want to broadcast their games to go up against Sunday games from the NFL. Yeah. So I think that would be pretty, pretty big for the company. Hey, how often does it come down to cash on cash on cash? Bloomberg's Mark Gurman and Brandon Sapienza. 
Thanks to you both. And be sure to catch the lineup tonight at 7 p.m. New York time. It's our new show focused on the sports betting industry. Tonight, former Dallas Cowboys Des Bryant joins the program. Coming up, we'll take a look at the resurgence in climate-focused investing as companies and governments double down on lightening their carbon footprints. Our discussion with climate-focused firm Voyager Ventures next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This week is Climate Week in New York, with the summit bringing together international leaders from business, government and civil society to showcase global climate action. So let's wrap the week up with Voyager Ventures, a new firm that's raised $100 million for its first fund, backing tech startups working on things like decarbonizing transportation, energy systems and foods and materials production, to only name a few. Let's talk all about this with the co-founders and managing partners, Sierra Peterson and Sarah Sklasik, joining me now. Sierra, I'll start with you. Climate week, a whole week, the world is watching. Do events like this really induce change? Yeah, I mean, Climate Week is, I think, a good illustration of the unparalleled momentum we've seen in this past year in recognizing the opportunity in addressing climate change and climate stabilization through investment and the policy uh, that has shown up in a major way in the United States to do so. So every week is Climate Week in some way. Sarah, I think what I find so fascinating, especially in private markets, venture capital, you're putting money in a portfolio of companies. Some of them will make it, some of them won't. And a lot of these ideas, they always seem a bit nascent, right? They always seem like things with great promise. How do you decide to, to where you deploy capital? 
Yeah, so we invest in companies building products and services that are positioned to decarbonize some aspect of the global economy. And these are the world's biggest markets we're talking about, energy, food and materials production, transportation. And what we recognized, and part of the reason that we started Voyager now when we did, is that many of these foundational technologies are reaching the point where they are cheaper and better performing than their fossil fuel incumbents. So we're, of course, seeing this in the area of electric vehicles, where the total cost of ownership of a light-duty vehicle is less than that of a combustion engine vehicle, and the performance is better. And so we look for opportunities in these expanding markets where foundational technologies are positioned to outcompete in the near term, in the next few years, or even today, their fossil fuel incumbents. And I think it's important to recognize these technologies will continue to get better over time and the fossil fuel-based incumbents will continue to be ever more or less competitive. Sierra, let me ask you that question in reverse. Where are you not investing? Where do you not put your money within climate carbon reduction and why? Yeah, certainly. So we are an early stage venture capital firm. So as a venture capital firm, we seek investments that have a venture scale return profile. There are plenty of opportunities for investing in the overall transition away from an unsustainable and carbon intensive economy around the world. There are infrastructure investments to be made. There are certainly interesting opportunities to invest in the carbon markets themselves. We are investing in early stage technology companies that hold, as I said, an interesting and venture scale return profile. Out of Fund One, for example, we look for companies that we believe through our single investment can return the entire $100 million fund through that investment. So you both raised around $100 million in April, I believe. I want to just take a look on the screen at some of those backing you guys, some of your LPs, really interesting names from industry for example, you know, one being Jeff Immelt of GE, long time at GE, one of these great big American companies. And we talked in the intro about how Climate Week brings together policymakers, business. When you look across corporate America at a General Electric, for example, do you think that they are A, doing enough, Sarah, but B, doing the right things with their investment? Yeah, uh, many companies are recognizing the opportunity in the transition and they're seizing the opportunity. I think uh, certainly not every company is and all companies could be doing more. Uh, what it's difficult to recognize is that once technologies hit inflection points where they are better performing and less expensive than the technology paradigm they're replacing, they continue to get better and they can continue to get better at a faster rate. And so we think these transitions will happen linearly in reality, they actually can happen much, much faster than that. And so timelines and inflection points that feel like they might be 20 years out in decarbonization, in the transition from combustion to clean electricity, might actually be happening in 10 years or five years. And corporations that don't prepare for that uh, and then are not ready for what is potentially the most rapid transition of economic activity the world has ever seen, are not only going to be at risk for their business, but they're also going to miss out on a $50 trillion opportunity. Right. Sierra, it's been a really interesting week digging into the actual technologies, the things that, that founders are trying to improve. Talk to me about some of your portfolio companies, the areas and the technologies that you're most excited about. 
Yeah. So we invest in foundational decarbonization. That is the technologies that are poised to decarbonize big swaths of the global economy. These are mobility, energy itself, food materials production, the built environment. We are backing companies that are poised to, should they succeed in, in these markets, really address emissions at scale across the global economy. And our portfolio reflects that. We invest in software companies. We invest in deep technology companies, we invest in biotechnology companies, and all are positioned to compete with right. the fossil fuel paradigms uh, of prior technology based on price and performance alone. Right. Voyager co-founders and managing partners Sierra Peterson and Sarah Sklarsik, thank you very much. Now, Nikola founder Trevor Milton had an odd reaction when shares plummeted on their Nasdaq debut back in 2020. Milton was, quote, hyper-focused on the company's stock price, so much so that when the shares fell 5% on their first trading day of June 2020, he thought something was wrong with the Nasdaq. Jurors at his criminal fraud trial were told. CFO Kim Brady testified that he explained to Milton the decline was simply supply and demand, but Milton insisted Brady contact the exchange. Brady told jurors that it was a constant battle to get Milton, the company's biggest shareholder, to focus on building long-term value rather than obsess over retail investors and stock price fluctuations. And Ford has begun the largest factory project in its 119-year history. The automaker has started construction of its $5.6 billion electric vehicle manufacturing complex in western Tennessee. It's known as Blue Oval City. By 2025, 6,000 workers are expected to be building electric pickup trucks and the batteries that power them in a joint venture with South Korea's SK Innovation. Now, market lows for the year are in sight after this week's sell-off. All three major indices dropped this week after the Fed's 75 basis point hike and signaled higher rates will remain. Tech was not spared. Our next guest says there could be some bright spots along with challenges for everyone, from startup founders to chief executives. David Crawford is partner at Bain and Company, as well as its global head of technology. David, the week that was, what do you make of what's going on in the world? Well, uh, good question. I think, um, uh, thanks for the question. I think we, we see long-term uh, you know, innovation and growth in the tech sector. That said, uh, we've already seen our clients uh, swallow kind of a 20% equity uh, you know, reduction this year. Uh, that's mostly been multiple adjustment. The second half of the year, we think, is actually about sorting out how much demand pulls back. We, we believe uh, there are major disruptions from supply chain as well as war and now the recessionary effects of a demand pullback, which as we look into our client base, we think that's actually going to be revealed to be more substantial than people think and surprise the markets some more. So volatility is a buzzword again. The world is volatile, the markets are volatile, but you see an opportunity to do what you call kickstarting the rebuild. What do you mean by that? Uh, what we talk about is that in a downturn, there is opportunity. And particularly if you can be uh, an incumbent or someone who is strong in your sector, uh, there's a flight to quality. It creates more opportunities for you to grow. It creates more opportunities for you to do M&A. It creates more opportunities for you to do deals. But there's a process of managing through the downturn such that you can gain share and gain market position. It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Especially when we talk about growth equity, because a lot of these innovators, they need cash. They need money to, to grow, to expand what they're doing. But if you're an investor, 
that carries risk in this environment. So how do you pass that? Yeah, great question. We see growth equity as <clears throat> a direct result of the unique innovative conditions in the tech sector today. Uh, it turns out that the markets have put down over the last decade enormous amounts of cloud computing, pervasive connectivity, GPS infrastructure, et cetera, and it's created an environment in which new companies can be built and scaled extremely rapidly. And if you understand that playbook, you can invest behind it with a growth equity formula that is extraordinarily high, high payback. Um, so I think that formula has not gone away. Those conditions have not gone away. We're going to have to work through these uh, these uh, difficult environment, you know, in the next six to 12 months. But after that, I think we'll have a return of the same extraordinary innovation conditions. David, we're showing a lot of red on the screen on a year-to-date basis in equity markets, on a weekly basis. But it's Friday. Let's, let's think about the positive, the opportunity. And I enjoyed your latest research, right, because you're talking about specific areas, the role of Web3 in rewriting the rules of digital user identity. You're excited about AI in customer success. How do you convince investors that now is the time to deploy capital to those areas? Yeah, I think um, it's been interesting to watch equity uh, multiple adjustments. The hardest hit by far have been the smaller companies with the extraordinarily high growth rates. There's been a flight to quality, and that just makes a number of extraordinarily innovative and important, frankly, assets available at much cheaper prices than it would have been otherwise. So uh, I guess we would say uh, innovation is very much alive. <clears throat> We're looking down the barrel of a massive growth in the metaverse, Web 3.0 being one piece of that. Um, and we just think that um, this transitional effect creates opportunities for uh, smart players to make good bets. David, I'm going to bring up a chart which I saw in your research, which shows the growth of growth equity relative to public markets, equity, venture capital, and, and what we see in terms of buyouts in the market. What is the story that this chart is telling on our screens? Yeah, great question. The basic story there is the extraordinary growth of the growth equity investor tranche, you know, and growth equity is not a new concept, but it's it's meant to be targeted at a life stage that, you know, is going from, uh, you know, stability to scale. And as I mentioned before, we just think it reflects the growth here has grown to 27% of total capital deployed. That's extraordinary. It's doubled since the last two years. So we just think it reflects the <clears throat> conditions of innovation that are ever present in tech right now. The pervasive uh, availability of cloud computing, of um, uh, connectivity, of AI, of technologies, payment systems, you name it. Uh, just allows a good concept to be uh, created and scaled extremely rapidly. And investors have sorted that out. They've actually made that into a great business. If you're an investor anywhere in the world in the last two years, you've done a bit of reading about semiconductors and the global chip industry. Everyone is trying to become an expert on the chip industry. Where do you see the health of the chip industry in terms of supply bottlenecks, but, but also the, the story has turned so quickly to demand. 
Yeah, the the chip story is is a multifaceted one. It started out uh, two and a half years ago with the auto industry canceling its its orders and those orders being reallocated to keep factories full. Um, when the economy recovered more quickly than people thought, there was just no availability because the factories protect themselves by backfilling. Since then, it's become you know an extraordinary story of global disruption that occurs as. Uh, individual players lose their orders, underproduce, overproduce, et cetera. And it shows us that how dependent we really are on chips. And it's not just leading edge chips, it's chips at all um, at, at all places within in the uh, node, node progression of, the, of right. the fabrication. And that is also, of course, shone a light on the relationship between the United States and China. And I know that your research has touched on that as well. Yeah, there's a whole other layer to this story, which is that, you know, the world has found itself um, extremely dependent on a small number of companies to produce these, some of which, one of which is very important is Taiwan Semiconductor in Taiwan. And to the extent um, there's a single point of failure in your supply chain, uh, this chip shortage has really highlighted for folks uh, how, how dependent they really are uh, on, on that single company. And many companies are looking to uh, diversify. With all that in mind, Give me the David Crawford projection for 2023 in the world of tech. Yeah, uh, simple. In any, the back end of 2023 will be about innovation and growth and, and sorting out how to win here. I think the next six to eight months will be working through the, the disruptions that we're experiencing now. Um, and those include everything from the geopolitical environment to, as you described, the supply chain shortages, one of which is the chip shortage. Um, uh, as well as the recessionary effect of demand pullback. All right, David Crawford, partner at Bain & Company and head of its global technology practice, thank you. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. 
Time for our crypto report, and today we take a look at what we call oracles. Our own crypto contributor, Shanali Bashak, is here with our guest. Shanali, take it away. Thank you, Ed. We're going to talk to Mike Cahill. He's the Pith Data Association Director, and we're going to talk about oracles here because data is hard to come by in the traditional financial system. It's hard to come by in crypto because it's such a vast landscape. So when we're talking about oracles, what do you really mean? And what does it mean for the universe of smart contracts that need that external data from uh, the real world services that really provide that gateway um, to each other? Sure. First off, thanks so much for having me. Um, on blockchains, as you mentioned, we've got smart contracts, and the smart contracts will execute rules-based decision criteria that can move something of value. So it could be Bitcoins, it could be Ethereum. Um, and when they are doing this, there's no third-party intermediary that's going to make any judgment calls. So they're dependent upon the inputs, and that inputs come from data. Um, and so that data is, the, 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 the quality of that data is paramount. And so Oracle networks provide a way to get high quality data that's very trustworthy. And the way that they do that is by having multiple contributors distribute that data directly on chain, and it becomes very robust and resilient. Now, how does this really help big institutions, high frequency traders really engage with the crypto universe with a lot more rigor? Yeah, so what's really cool about the Pith Network is it has attracted some of the largest trading firms and exchanges to contribute their data directly onto the blockchain. We think about the Pith Network as being really high-quality infrastructure that can power the next generation of decentralized applications um, and power the growth of Web3. So it's really the tooling that large trading firms and exchanges come to expect to make this institutional grade so that it can participate in the future. You know, it's interesting because when you think about how it used to work, data is proprietary. <laughs> data is something that not a lot of people like to traditionally share. So what do these firms get out of it by starting to share data and starting to amass more data altogether? That's a great question. So there's a reward mechanism within the Pith Network where the data providers are incentivized to provide that data on-chain. Um, and what has been very exciting is in a similar capacity to how Airbnb has enabled an entire new inventory of places to stay. The Pith Network has opened up and unlocked reserves of, of data that came from trading firms that never ever distributed it for external use before. Um, some of the participants include Jump Trading, Jane Street, Susquehanna, and they're contributing their data directly on chain. And this is something that they've never once have used externally before, so it's very cool. Mike, you used to work at Morgan Stanley, and you know when you look at this kind of high-frequency trading world, all those companies that you said that you work with, like Jane Street, Susquehanna, why is it that high-frequency trading firms are more likely to engage with this universe than a, a large firm like Morgan Stanley? You see some of those big houses starting to trade in crypto, but it's really at the margins. Yeah, I agree. I think that the first movers tend to be ones that have um, smaller committees around where they can enter into markets. Um, so these are really the nimble firms, um, the ones that get in early. They're comfortable with both the cryptography risk as well as potentially some regulatory risks. Um, and then navigating that landscape is never easy, but it's a calculated risk that they have to take. For the banks, I think that they need to get a little bit more comfortable with the caliber and the scale of risks that they're going to get into. And I think they're making a lot of progress, as you mentioned, um, and we will expect to see them come in over time. And what would it take, do you think, for decentralized finance to do everything that you would see in the tra a traditional financial system? 
Yeah, I think it's going to take a lot of development. Um, there's some things that crypto does really well, which is like, you know, sending things around the world of value um, with low friction um, and low fees. Um, and then there's some things that in, in centralized finance, it does really well. For instance, privacy. Everything is fully public on, uh, on blockchains, and that's not necessarily the best thing for um, like a trading engine or for um, you to send like your Venmo account and have everything be public. Um, so I think that we're going to see better technology emerge. Um, and this infrastructure tooling is really designed to allow people to build stuff and, and build stuff that can compete with the real world of centralized finance. I'd love for you to talk about your work also with certain blockchains, particularly Solana. Of course, we've come off the merge. We were talking a little earlier this week to Anatoly Yakovenko. You know, what is it, what kind of data do you have? What kind of decisions are you making as this ecosystem evolves to know what's gonna be more dominant moving forward? Yeah, so Pith started its life about a year ago on, on the Solana blockchain and it became very quickly the canonical oracle to be used on chain. Uh, over 95% of the applications are securing their data with, the, with that network. Um, and Pith is now going multi-chain, and it's really just, if you think about these chains being similar to operating systems, you want to have the best possible toolings to attract users to build applications on these operating systems. Um, and so having Pith available on chain is a very important component um, for these these layer ones to compete with one another. So Pith goes to all the EVM chains now and will ex extend to the, the, the new ones, some with um, competitive aspects to Solana using different languages as well. I have to admit, Mike, a data oracle sounds a bit like a mythical creature. So <laughs> what exactly, what is the function that you serve in this community? What kind of data are we talking about here? You know, what is the ultimate goal? Yeah, it does sound like a mythical creature. The name does come from Greek mythology, and Pith comes from Pythia, so um, there are ties in there. But today, um, the, the Pith data uh, spans the sector of crypto, U.S. equities, FX, metals. Um, so we've got a bit of everything. You can see the price of Apple updating on chain every 400 milliseconds and being used by anybody. Um, but you can go on the, on the website and see this type of information, and we expect to have that scale out to other categories that people are interested in using them in smart contracts. Well, I'm with you. If we can make uh, mythical creatures to make foreign exchange sound all the more exciting, I am in for that. Mike Cahill, that's the CEO of Pith Data Association. Thank you so much. Ed, back to you. Thanks, Janati. Mythical. Let's talk about space. NASA said earlier today the long-awaited launch of its space launch system is still possible next week after a successful fueling test on Wednesday. But bad weather is on the horizon. Meantime, we might also be closer to SpaceX's Starship conducting an orbital test launch. Just not as close as you might think. To wrap the week in space, Bloomberg's Lauren Grush joins me on set in New York. Yes. Let's start with SLS. What <laughs> is going on? That's a great question, something I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around as well. So, yes, NASA is trying for their third launch attempt of uh, the Space Launch System. The first two had been scrubbed for various technical reasons, and they gave an update today. They're still targeting Tuesday, September 27th. However, as you mentioned, a tropical storm or tropical, tropical depression is brewing off the coast of South America. Right. The 
latest forecast shows it heading straight towards Florida. All sorts of emergencies are being declared over there. So it's not looking good weather-wise. NASA says they are they're keeping an eye on it. They're still tracking towards a launch, but they'll make a decision hopefully by tomorrow morning or early afternoon if they need to roll the rocket back from its launch pad into the hangar. So Wednesday was kind of key. I think we have some video of it, this fueling test. Yes. What is that? So um, during their second launch attempt, they had a hydrogen leak and they found they needed to replace a, a component on the rocket. And then what they wanted to do was to test if that, that work that they had done had actually worked. And so what they did on Wednesday was basically simulate what they do on launch day by filling the rocket with propellant and making sure that there weren't any leaks. Unfortunately, there were some leaks that propped up during that test, but they were able to push past them after some troubleshooting, and they were able to successfully fuel the rocket just as they would on a launch day. So they said that they met all of their objectives despite those issues, and so they're still, they're ready to go. They, they want to launch this thing, but there seems to be all these different variables. Yeah, the question is, are you ready to go? <laughs> Uh, I've gone to Florida twice now. I'm ready to book my ticket for the third time, but I would prefer not to go in the in the path uh, of a right. hurricane. There is a serious <laughs> reason why we're paying attention to this launch, right, which is there are bigger goals, ultimately. What are those bigger goals? I think we have a map which shows if and when this mission launches, it's for a reason. Right. So SLS is part of NASA's plan called Artemis, which is this big ambitious program to send the first woman and the first person of color to the moon. And this is just the first step. So what they want to do with Artemis 1, this mission, is show that the SLS and, its, and NASA's deep space Orion crew capsule can right. actually work. There won't be any people on board, but they want to send it around the moon to just kind of have this demonstration so that when they do put people on board, they're confident that they'll be safe. Lauren, this week, Elon Musk has been tweeting. Did that surprise <laughs> Shocker. Uh, and one of the things that he tweeted was in response to a question on Starship. And when Starship will do its first orbital test flight, he says, November seems highly likely. We will have two boosters and ships ready for orbital flight by then with full stack production. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I, if you've been following Elon's tweets, which I'm sure you have, he does like to make very aspirational uh, goals for his flights. So, you know, I think he said earlier when March it was ready, maybe April. I think back in 2019 even he said it would be launching in six months. So every time he gives us a launch date, I take it with, you know, a boulder-sized grain of salt. However, that said, SpaceX has been making great progress on Starship development. They ha recently had a seven-engine Raptor static fire. Next, the be next big goal would be right. to static fire 33 of those engines, and that's that's a lot of engines at once. So there'll be a lot of flames. They've also uh, been prone to set the Boca Chica area around them on fire sometimes when that happens. So we'll we'll be keeping an eye on that. And once that happens, then I think we'll be realistically getting closer. And to end for. Friday on a positive note, I understand that there's a meteor headling, headling, hurtling towards <laughs> Earth, but that we're not in danger. Even so, NASA are going to try and crash land something into it. So it's not hurtling towards Earth. Oh, it's, thank it's completely fine, completely benign. It's the DART mission. NASA is testing out a method for 
potentially nudging asteroids out of the way if we ever were to find one coming towards Earth in the future. So this is just a test. Nobody needs to worry. No one needs to, you know, pack up and, and head for the hills, uh, though I don't know if you'd be safe there. Um, no, this is just a test, and what they're doing is they're intentionally sending a spacecraft into an asteroid to nudge it off of its course, and then that way, if we were to ever have an asteroid headed our way right. that we knew about, right. that could just, you know, make it veer away from Earth right. safely. This is just a test. Bloomberg's Lauren Grush. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.